big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patrons. So shout out to Jade, Mo, Kristen, Lottie, and Christina. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to exclusive content like our notes, outtakes, bonus episodes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. We love making this podcast, but it's a lot of work, and each new patron we get is one step closer to being able to pay ourselves for the time we put in. Plus, we're working on a bunch of new perks to make it worth your while. Truly, your support means the world to us, so thank you. Also, we are on YouTube now. We're working on getting all the episodes uploaded, but for now, we would so appreciate it if you'd subscribe to our channel. Just search Pod and Prejudice on YouTube. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering part three of the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with our guest, Will Williams. All I was going to say is that, like, Philly is half, like, hardcore, like, hipsters, like, Brooklyn wishes they were that cool hipsters. Oh, yeah. And half, like, deep-level, like, Italian-American hardcore, like, flags everywhere, like, olive oil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should just move to Philly because that both of those are me, so... <laughs> You'd fit in well. You are that in one human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of the uh, Philly slam poetry scene, which I think says, like, everything you need to know about me. Hell yeah. This is such a tangent, but uh, Philly has, like, a pretty robust fringe festival. It's very, like, artist-driven, really great. So the first Monday of every month, they have something called Scratch Night, where the drinks are dirt cheap and the show is free. Oh, hell and yeah. And anyone can submit to, like, workshop something little and I have seen some really cool stuff there. And I have seen some of the weirdest stuff I've ever seen in my hell life. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You basically go, you get like a really cheap drink and you go see theater for free. Hell yeah. And there is a really large range of stuff. I've seen dance pieces that are in workshop. I've seen like monologue plays that are in workshop. I did see one. And like props to this guy because art is about bravery. <laughs> where the bit was that he was wearing nothing except a ski mask and he taped a live mic to his face under the ski mask and he had two live mics on wires and he was kind of swinging the mics in like massive junk rope circles and screaming as he walked around the stage that hurts just to think about it happened for like five minutes straight oh no it ended and then it was on his knees and he took off his mask and everything but I think that really captures what Scratch Night is. It's, it's an extreme version, but it's really anybody who's really trying to figure out what a piece is in front of a very receptive, young, slightly drunk audience. Fuck yeah. But I think about that sometimes when it, people are like, ah, experimental theater doesn't really speak to me. And I'm like, well, no, you, you really have to give it a shot. I just think about the guy with the live mics. <laughs> you know, I got to say, like, I don't know if that sounds like good art or like bad art. But what I can say is that it sounds like a fucking mood. 
So good for him. Yeah. You know? Exactly. I feel like I would just look at that and be like, fucking same. Yeah. Like, yeah, I feel it. (laughs) I mean, this was back in like 2016, like before everything happened. Oh, no, no. 2016, things were well underway and we had just had some pretty bad occurrences. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, this was like January of 2016. Oh. So it's possible he was holding the fabric of the universe together. Oh, my God. It's his fault. He did this. Oh. He did this. In another timeline, he kept his clothes on. And we had Hillary Clinton as a president instead. Wow. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, Scratch Night, dude, if you're listening to this, I commend your bravery. But hell yeah. Can you, like, zip the universe back up a little bit, please? Please. It's leaking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I hope they're still doing Scratch Night. That was a couple years ago. Are we ready to talk about Jane Austen now that we've covered naked performance? Yeah, let's <laughs> talk about Jane Austen. How about that Pride and Prejudice, man? <laughs> yeah, that one. That that piece of art. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the, hmm, let's call it the middle third of Pride and Prejudice, directed by Joe Wright. And we're here today joined with a very special guest. They've been with us for the first half of this movie, Will Williams. How's it going, Will? It's going well. Happy to be back. Happy to be discussing this movie, uh, which I think y'all have solidified for me that like, yeah, I might just like Pride and Prejudice. This is such a high compliment. Oh my goodness. We did it. Yeah, I'm shocked. It's on the record now. (laughs) One last time. Tell the people uh, what you do. Yeah. So I am a podcast journalist and critic, and I'm also a creator. Um, You can find my work on sites like Polygon, what have you. You can find my podcasts over at Hug House Productions, where I am the showrunner of a fiction podcast called Valence. You can find me on Twitter at at WillWWrites, and you can find Hug House at HugHouse.Productions. Awesome. So, without further ado, I guess we should just get back into this movie, which I rewatched yet again, at least just (laughs) these scenes today. But I was like, how many times am I going to watch the 2005 version, which I was sworn to hate when I began it? And Mm -hmm. now I'm obsessed with it. So glad. I'm so (laughs) thrilled to hear that. Like, I remember when you first tried it out, I remember the tweets and I was like, no, I understand. But no. And I'm so glad to hear that you like it now. I really do. Yeah, I was curious as to what would have happened if we had recorded this podcast like immediately after you watched it because I feel like it would have just been me like coaxing you on a lot of it and mm-hmm. Will as our guest coaxing yep, you on yep. a lot of it but <laughs> I'm glad you're more positive about it this time yeah yeah I have to say I mean our listeners know and my friends all know I'm not very good at disliking things um so if <laughs> I my first instinct is to dislike something I usually like do my research and try really hard to like it because I don't like not liking things mm-hmm. for example I recently guested on a friend's show called Red Team Reviews where they were reviewing the third Star Wars movie and I used to love the Star Wars prequels like love 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 like obsession love fascinating then I took like a 10-year break I went back watched them again I was like oh no these are bad then (laughs) didn't watch them for a while and then I I was asked to do the show so I was like okay watching the third movie (laughs) and it was highly enjoyable I had a great time so there's so much 
joy in watching any Star Wars movie. Yes. That's not episode two. But <laughs> yeah, big agree there. Big agree. Big agree. <laughs> but two things on this. One, for our patrons, they know this, but our sound engineer, Graham, we love him dearly. Whoa there. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's me, Graham, the sound engineer for Pod and Prejudice. Now, what you were about to hear was our illustrious hosts and our distinguished guests say some things that are patently false about Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. What I've done through the magic of editing is amend their comments so they hold more true to reality. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy. In our text chain, had a debate ranking the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. And Graham ranked Revenge of the Sith second. Right. It's perfect. This is the only film I like. What well said. What a good movie. Exactly. Shout out to Graham. He is perfect. That is the first part. The other part is that Molly watched the film and was like, yeah, Anakin's hot. Let's be clear about this. I understand that he's a fascist. He is. He is. I understand that. I'm not standing fascism. I'm standing hating Christensen. Yeah. As a handsome boy. Hating Christensen is a handsome boy who cannot be found handsome in Star Wars because he plays Anakin Skywalker. And this is crucial, is standing next to Ewan McGregor playing (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) And as we know... Ewan McGregor is uh, the only defined British man. Yes. For me, at least. We do know this. <laughs> exactly. All other British men are just British men who aren't Ewan McGregor. Actually, he's not even British. He's Irish, isn't he? Yeah. Is he? I thought he was Scottish. Who knows? Oh, I don't know. He's a redhead. This is worth Googling. Listen, I am I am willing to put him as the only white man uh, whose name I will remember. <laughs> It's Ewan McGregor and my husband. That's it. <laughs> if you had to pick a white man to remember, Ewan McGregor is the choice. I mean, he's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Like the least realistic part of the prequels, like including all the space stuff, is that Padme is looking at Anakin and Obi Wan and chooses Anakin. It's true, especially because Obi Wan is probably like three or four years older than her, and Anakin's like nine years younger than her. Or, that's not exact numbers. But. Are you an angel? Are you an angel? I'm done oh, with this. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. done with are you an angel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Segue. I have a graceful segue. Padme, her handmaiden, is yes, played by Kira Knightley, Knightley, who's yes. in this movie. Oh my god, there we go. There we Perfect. go. So there we are. Let's talk about it. Where we were, listeners, when we left off, is Jane has just received a letter from Caroline Bingley saying that they have left Netherfield. And Jane is going to London to go be with her aunt and uncle. And that's where we are. So we open out on scene six. And this is another one of those moments that could be in a horror film. And I did watch some of those videos you sent me, Will. Yes, good, good. Yeah, they're amazing. They're so good. So good. They're so good. And they work. It just works well. Yeah. We're going to have to link those to the Instagram the day this premieres. Absolutely. They'll be in the show notes. So check it out down below. I know we're not a YouTube channel. So Lizzie's on a swing. She's swinging in circles. The landscape is sweeping by and then she passes by one more time and there's a person standing in her view. Absolute horror melt. Terrifying. Yeah, you're totally right. I think I shrieked. Very scary. Yeah. Like, that is some ghost shit. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because it's so silent and like, it's just like, what, what is she, why is there a swing in the middle of the barn? Truly. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Uh, I will say like, they didn't, they didn't have Twitter, you know? That's true. They didn't have Animal Crossing. That's true. So those are the only forms of entertainment, right? <laughs> <laughs> but like, they live near a pond. Like, why not have the swing near the pond? Pond's haunted. <laughs> 
Lizzie Bennett's not like other girls. Exactly. She's a tomboy. Yep. She needs to hang out with the animal. Yep. <laughs> so it's Charlotte there to tell her the terrifying news that she is engaged to Mr. Collins. And I have to say, re this Charlotte's performance, I love it. Yes, I love it. At first, I was like, this isn't how Charlotte is. She's not romantic. She doesn't care. But this Charlotte does care. And she's super self-aware and aware of her situation. And she's like, I can't afford to be romantic. Yeah. And so I loved that for her. It was much more relatable than the book Charlotte. Yeah, it definitely lets her lean into those emotions. I did need to quote this directly because it's just my mood nowadays. Mm -hmm. I'm 27 years old. I've no money and no prospects. I'm already a burden on my parents, and I'm frightened. (laughs) What a 2020 mood. I feel incredibly called out. For (laughs) real. Says me in my my childhood bedroom closet with my mom downstairs. Mm -hmm. I am currently in my parents' closet as well, so yeah. I am in my own closet. But I am closeted to my parents. Does that does that count? That counts. <laughs> we love a good closet joke on this podcast. Oh, yeah. We do. Oh, oh, yeah. Yes. So then she starts swinging in circles some more. And I assumed that this scene was supposed to be like time passing, uh, going through the seasons. Because every time she turns, it's different weather. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's what's happening here. Yeah. Good. So then we skip half the book. Yeah. And we end up <laughs> in the spring. And she's on her way to visit Charlotte and there's a letter. And in the letter, we recount the half of the book that we missed, which is the militia's going away. Um, that's, I guess that's basically it. Not a lot happens in the middle of the book. So the militia is gone. Wickham is gone. And she's going to visit Charlotte by herself, not with Mariah Lucas, my favorite character in the book. Oh. Sad. R.I.P. R.I.P. Mariah Lucas. And Sir William Lucas as well, I suppose. Yeah. Shouts to all the pointless but delightful characters that are in the book Mm -hmm. in the BBC version and just ruthlessly get killed by Joe Wright in this version. Which it's, it's fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is the worst part of the book that they cut where everyone's just moping around Longbourn. Yeah, nah, man. And we're just waiting for Lizzie to get a little bit more over the Collins thing, the Charlotte thing, and for Jane to continue to be in love with Bingley. It's just like, it's a lot of time to marinate on that. You know that gif? I guess it comes from like probably an episode of the Kardashian show, but the one where it's like, there are wars in countries. People are dying, Cam. Yeah, yeah. Like, that is exactly how I feel. Like, I again, I just need to shake them and be like, have real problems. <laughs> Get good, please. So they arrive at Rosings. Well, they're not at Rosings. I guess they're at the parsonage outside of Rosings. And this was really cute. Collins is like going on about his house and Lizzie and Charlotte just walk away. And then Collins is still talking. And he's talking about how any lady would be really happy to be the mistress of this house. Trying to be like, hey, Lizzie, look what you missed out on. But she's not there. Yeah. (laughs) He has just his garden. That Charlotte makes sure he tends to so he doesn't come in and uh, flirt with her and make love to her. Yeah. Or that. (laughs) Yeah. I love that they're both just like, anyway. (laughs) Every single time we get to this part in the book and the movie, I come to the realization that Charlotte is finding creative ways to tire him out so she doesn't have to have sex with him. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. More power to you, girl. Like, (laughs) truly a queen. Resourceful. Something that's missing in this version that was in the 1995 version is Collins's excellent beekeeping hat. I just wish he had it in this. (laughs) They are not as heavy handed with the fact that he gardens in this. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I thought it would be a nice touch. <laughs> it seems like something this movie would do, too. Yeah. Like, it totally seems like the kind of comedy they would throw in here. Absolutely. But alas. He likes potatoes and bees. He's a simple man. Yep. Excellent boiled potatoes. <laughs> I don't know where that impression came from. I'm so sorry, everyone. It's okay, I loved it. I loved it. That was a mix of a lot of things. So Lady Catherine arrives, and this was also a moment that could be in a horror movie. This is just the rest of the podcast is me comparing it to a horror movie. I'm here for it. He's like, Charlotte, come quickly. And she's like, what is it? Did the pig escape again? And she runs to the window, and he tells her that Lady Catherine has invited them to dine that night at Rosings. And they turn around to Lizzie, and they're like, don't worry about what you're wearing. Just look look nice. You'll be humble. It's okay. Such a mean mean every single adaptation of this book has that line in it where collins is like don't worry that you didn't bring nice clothes she likes to feel superior yeah god lady catherine is a a bitch but i can't wait to talk about her i will say before we get to rosings charlotte in this adaptation seems happy there in a way that i have not it wasn't in the 1995 like she seemed content but in this one she actually genuinely seems excited to go see Lady Catherine which I thought was nice yeah this one has a lot of interesting takes on uh it basically validates Charlotte's choice and the way that Pride and Prejudice the book doesn't really give us yeah it was it's nice to see her agency affirmed yeah and like to not have that undermined by something less favorable like she was right this is probably the best she can do and the fact that she's like actually savoring that is very refreshing. Absolutely. So then we get to Rosings and my notes just say it's motherfucking Dame Judy Dench. Hell yeah, it is. Playing Catherine de Berg. Catherine de Berg, and she has entered the building. Oh, yes. Let me tell you, the last time I saw Dame Judy Dench in anything, it was Cats 2019. <gasps> Oh, I don't know if this is something that you want to put on your podcast. I certainly don't care. I had taken an edible halfway through the film. Totally fine. <laughs> cool. Wait, halfway through? Yes. Oh, no. I waited until I could no longer bear the film. <laughs> so actually, it was not halfway through. It was when they were like, I want to say they were in a graveyard, but that certainly can't be right. It was probably a graveyard. It's about death, right? Yeah, it's about sacrificing one of the cats to their god. I was in Cats the Musical when I was in eighth grade. I know what it's about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a graveyard in my head. You know, it doesn't matter. That was like 10 minutes in. That was like 10 minutes in so I guess I, I guess I took the edible 10 minutes in but it did hit the hardest right when Dame Judy Dench looked me directly in the eye my soul felt shaken from my bones I I don't know how to explain like it wasn't just dissociation it was like I was astral projecting but I but trapped in my body and she just kept looking at me and saying shit about how dogs are not cats and I was like, I I think I have died. And I think I've been dead, actually. That's the last scene of the movie. I'm so glad that my edible hit at the last scene of the movie. Oh, man. It came in in the clutch. I So here here's another conundrum with the Cats movie. Um, Molly, I don't know if you've seen it, but this is important. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you must. Simply. Should my mom and I get drunk and watch it this week? Yes. 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 Get drunk first. Get very drunk. Okay, cool. I mean, I was going to say, like, an edible is a choice to see cats. I yeah. I was a little drunk when I saw it, uh-huh. but I don't think I could have handled it in any other form. Here's the thing that, that really got to my brain about cats. So a lot of them wear fur coats. 
Yeah, they sure do. Mm-hmm. The way that the anatomy of the cats works in the film, it's not clear how the fur coats are part of their anatomy. Nope. And also, they're small. So these are small fur coats. Uh-huh. So <laughs> it's not clear mm-hmm. if they're they're wearing coats that are human fur coats shrunk down to cat size. No, they're cannibals. Whether they have slayed each other and yeah. wear the coats of their enemies as trophies. That's the one. Or if this is somehow integral to their actual, like, fundamental anatomy. Uh, I, I would argue that that is the case, given... We do see Jenny Anydots, the Gumby cat, zip off her own body to <laughs> reveal her own body underneath it, but with a different outfit. But that one was wearing a bedazzled bikini. <laughs> There's also a moment in the film where um, Jenny Anydots, uh, Rebel Wilson, if you will, has something she's using as a microphone. It's just not clear if it's if it's a bald tail, a uh-huh. CGI snafu, uh-huh. a very long penis. It's, uh-huh. it's, yeah. it's really one of the most obvious errors I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> uh, you know how the McElroys every year watch Paul Blart Mall Cop with some New Zealanders? And it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Hug House, the final day of November 2021... Uh, we'll be launching a podcast called You Are Not the Jellicle Choice, where we do this every year with Cats 2019. <gasps> wow. <laughs> you will find so many new beautiful things in that film. Um, yeah. Beautiful is the wrong adjective, but it is. I'm excited for that. <laughs> but all of this is to say, when we got to this scene and it, we we get like that kind of pan onto the side of Dame Judy Dench's face... I had a moment of visceral horror where I was convinced she was going to look at me again. <laughs> and I, like, could not fucking handle it. It was, like, talk about horror movie moments. I was scared out of my skin. I, like, jumped back. And then she didn't look at me because it was normal film. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I felt okay. <laughs> wow. You know what we need our listeners to do for us is a video. And you don't have to watch the video, Will. But, like, slow pan onto Dame Judy Dench's face. And then she's a cat in this movie. No! Nightmare! Nightmare! Just in her full cat costume. But, like, with the with the hair normal and, like, everything. But, like, face is cat. Cat. Body. Oh, God. Cat. Would the ears be there? The ears can be there, yeah. Because the ears were part of her hair. They gotta be there. They gotta yeah, okay, be there. The ears are there. It's a whole thing. It's a whole um, thing. But the one thing I want to point to, back to Jane Austen, <laughs> how weirdly ornate Rosings is. The frescoes. There's like gold painted everywhere. I absolutely hate these sets. I think that they are hideous. I agree. They are like, and maybe, maybe this is the point. I really can't tell if the set designer was trying to make it look actually opulent and glamorous or if they're trying to make it look obnoxiously like trying too hard but it looks like somebody who just learned what the rococo era is like decorated their house and had a budget of like ten thousand dollars yeah and they were like cool i'm gonna go to home goods and get some gold spray paint and i'm just gonna get like a million picture frames it's just like there's so much shit going on and not in a way that like actually feels authentic to anything at anything to anything hardcore agree it kind of felt like i was entering a fun home yes fun home the musical fun house yes with like mirrors everywhere but like naked people in the mirrors and they're just like everywhere it was not cute so it's like you enter a fun house naked but (laughs) 
with just a ski mask. Now I'm going to have a nightmare. I love the that you brought up opulence because I think like one of the things that bothers me about this scene, two things. One, it's not clear if the garish level of grandeur is supposed to point out like how over the top rich Lady Catherine de Bourgh is in like a gross way mm-hmm. because Pemberley is also like this. This is yes. like going forward, but Pemberley is also way over the top. Yes. Pemberley makes no sense to me in this film, but we'll get there when we get there. Oh, it makes no sense. And the other thing is that like very defining of like the English upper class is the notion of like opulence being something that the higher classes kind of shy away from because it lets the peasants know yes. what they're missing. Yes. And so there's like something very garish about showing off your wealth. It screams new money. And that is the exact opposite of Catherine de Berg as a character. Right. That's why this choice felt so strange to me. It's also like this is because it's so Rococo styled. It is categorically not English. Like it is categorically French, which I think is like very historically confusing. Like I don't I don't think that this old money English family would ever dabble in French iconography. So it was, it was a choice. Between this and that weird-ass ribbon store, I've just got questions. I've got questions. So many questions. All of the scenes that are shot outside, stunning, beautiful, flawless, perfect. Everything inside, you okay? Yep. Y'all okay? <laughs> I'd give some, well, actually, I take it back. I'm not going to give exception to Longbourn because Longbourn has that pig nut scene. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, the pig nuts are so uncomfortable. And and Longbourn from the outside, it's so big. And then the inside, the paint is peeling everywhere. And I'm right. just confused by it. Yes. But like we talked about how they've been spending their money on keeping servants as opposed to upkeeping the house. And like, that makes sense. This it's interesting you brought up the French style because they literally nodded to that already when Caroline was like, what's her face is redecorating the French style. How unpatriotic. And it's like, Lady Catherine's not unpatriotic. Right. I don't think. Well, she's like halfway between French, Italian, and Las Vegas casinos. Yes. So like, oh my God. Yes. It's un- <laughs> unbelievable. But anyway, Darcy's there. Yes. Darcy's there <laughs> at Rosings. Iconic. This shot was so funny. So Collins leans into Lizzie to tell her like how expensive something costs. Like, this alone is upwards of 300 pounds. And when he moves away, Darcy's face is there. <laughs> and I loved it. And she goes, Mr. Darcy. Colonel Fitzwilliam is also there. And this Colonel Fitzwilliam is how he's described in the book, which I appreciated, though he isn't very much of a character in the movie. He is, he is there. He's around. He doesn't really explain who he is. Yeah. Yeah. I miss some of the Lizzie Fitzy friendship they have going on. But yeah, we get it briefly in the next scene. So they go to dinner and more opulence. They got a servant at every chair waiting to push the chairs in. It's also very dark. It's just this. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's so weird. I actually enjoyed the dinner scene a little bit more because like it's the like right lighting for the time period, at least. The lighting is lovely. I I like that it kind of looks like those like old still life paintings of like fruit on a very dark background. Ooh, yeah, it does look like that. And I liked that. I just don't get why all of their interior shots are doing consistently the most. Mm-hmm. But this is this was certainly better than the scene that preceded it in set design. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I have a note on lighting in the next scene, which I'm sure we all do because it's also weird. But in this scene, I really liked Lady Catherine yelling at Collins not to sit next to his wife. So then he has to switch with Lizzie and then Lizzie's sitting next to Darcy so they can talk. This scene was actually pretty much what it was in the book. So I felt like the plot was moving right along. Dame Judy Gent is 
slaying as Lady yes. Catherine de Bourgh. She's exactly what Catherine de Bourgh. Perfect casting. Phenomenal. Honestly. Not Tilda Swinton. She's not. And I, after seeing her, I can see that they look quite different. Um, Will, I got them confused at, at first. I thought that. No, 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 no. I, I need to. This is the third time this is coming up on this podcast, but this <laughs> needs to be very crystal clear. So she said she pictured Gwyneth Paltrow playing Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And I said, huh, weird young choice. Yes. But I get the regality, the like, yes, the yes. hoity-toity, whatever. Right. Then she was like, by the way, I didn't mean Gwyneth Paltrow. I meant Dame Judi Dench. And I said, oh, Dame Judi Dench plays Lady Catherine de Bourgh. <laughs> but how did you get those two confused? And she said, they look alike, which I said, no, they don't. No. And then she texted me later saying, actually... I meant Tilda Swinton. I was picturing the White Witch. My dude, what? <laughs> well, like, I was picturing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I was picturing Tilda Swinton being, like, with her big crown and being, like... Okay, you keep talking about about her, that specific role, and I, I need to tell you that in that specific role, she still doesn't look like Dame Judi Dench <laughs> even a little. No, she doesn't. Um... <laughs> But can, if we take that specific role and we give that specific role these lines, it would be another take on <laughs> Catherine de Bourgh. Yes, it would be different. You're right. It would be different. Uh-huh. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. We've talked about Pride and Prejudice for like 20% of this last 20 <laughs> But I love Dame Judi Dench. And with all due respect to her, she, you know, she doesn't look like either of those women. And, um... And good for her. Honestly, she's killing it. She's perfect. She's perfect. So the scene is basically Lady Catherine berating how Lizzie grew up, asking about her sisters, asking why they're all out at once. Lizzie being very sassy back, being like, well, I don't know. We're happy. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, etc. Right. And that's basically the whole scene. Then we move to after dinner. And this scene, I had some problems with the lighting, mainly being that like it looked like a college theater production that I was in. With like the blue light coming from one direction and the orange light coming from the other direction. And it is nighttime. Yes. We get it. Yeah, they were really trying for something here. They were. Oh, yes. I'm not gonna say it didn't work because it did, but I noticed it. So like that was that was my only problem. They all look very like fake tanned in it, I think is the main issue. They do. Like I know that the lighting is supposed to be like, you know, like yes, nighttime and candles, but it I would say that it actually looks pretty, pretty unconvincing, pretty unnatural. Like the light sources are very confusing. And because of that, like they just look very orange. Yes. It's like super orange. When Darcy is facing one way, like he has blue light on half his face and orange on the other half. And I was like, is this a symbol for something? I can't tell. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. He looks pretty. Uh, Yeah. Like that's for sure. He is pretty. He's a beautiful man. He's pretty. So aside from the lighting, other things that were confusing would be the parrot or is it it's a bird. There's a bird in a cage and Lizzie's examining it because she is also a caged bird. And oh, yes. Yep. That's the metaphor. (laughs) That's it. Bang, bang, boom. Yep. They ask her to play the piano. She says, I'm not good at piano. They're like, you have to play the piano. And everyone is sitting like they're in a painting like Darcy and Fitzy are standing matching poses with their hands on their hips. And Collins has his knees bent and he's like. A little puppy dog, and we've got the girls over here, and Lady Catherine over here, and, and they're like, "You must play the piano." And she's like, "Really? I, 
okay, I'm not good. But so she plays the piano and she's fine. And then Darcy comes over and he flirts with her a little bit. And I thought he did a really good job. For Darcy. So for Darcy, he did great. Yeah, he did great. <laughs> they also have that little bit about how he can't speak well to people, which is so funny in this movie because we know. Yeah. Already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not like a big revelation like it was in the book. It's like, we've seen you blurt out every statement that you've ever made. You're like holding it back and then you're like, Ugh. It'd be great if her response was just like, uh-huh. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> I feel you. Yeah, it's also, um, I love that they kept in the bit about her saying, like, if I practice a piano, I'll be good, as a way to say, like, if you practice talking to people, you'll get better at it, mm-hmm. but they, like, modernized the line a little bit. Yeah, she was like, well, maybe you should take your aunt's advice and practice. Hmm? Right, hmm? right. I thought that was great. Yeah. I thought they delivered that scene with, like, all the chemistry in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say, like, a lot of the lines that Lizzie says feel modernized to the point that like some of the lines that aren't modernized feel forced when she says them. Absolutely. And I think that has to do with both Kira Knightley and her take on the character and the script, obviously, but like she says everything. And the like, direction too. Yeah. Like I feel like the direction was a little bit conflicted in whether it wanted to go like kind of like we were talking about before, like more naturalistic or sticking closer to the book. Um, and so sometimes when it gets closer to the book, it, it definitely stumbles. I think the actor who really like perfects the balance between those two things is Dame Judi Dench. Oh, I think she does a perfect job. Absolutely. Absolutely. She's flawless. And I mean, she's like, she is Dame for a reason. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Yeah. She, she delivered her, the first time I watched this, I was like, she's speaking so fast. Like that's not how Catherine de Berg speaks. And I was like, I'm on my high horse, etc. Second time I watched it, I was like, oh, I get what she's saying. And she's not being over the top. She's just being Catherine de Berg and like she's fucking rocking it she's great she's fucking terrifying in it that's the thing is like I really like the cadence and the kind of clip that she speaks with because it's so confident and it is so much like an assertion of intellectual and sociological superiority that comes with being old 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 money like of course she speaks this quickly she has in her eyes, like, no time for dumbasses, you know? Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I love it. Absolutely. She's so good. Oh. So then Fitzwilliam comes over, and he and Lizzie gossip about how Darcy is the worst. Basically, she's like, he didn't dance with anyone. But they don't really get to have the banter, because then immediately Catherine de Berg's like, Fitzwilliam, I need you! And he, he goes, all right, and then he runs away. That's when he, Darcy says the thing about not being good at talking to people, and... That's the end of the scene. And that would bring me to my study question. But my study question at the end of the scene was <laughs> about the design of Rosings. Well, great. <laughs> we did so it. So I think we covered it. Look at us. We <laughs> aced that. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to the next scene. Potentially my favorite collection of moments to happen in modern cinema. <laughs> this is hands down my favorite scene of this film. Hands down. Yeah. This is as hot to me as that hand flex but it's also heartbreaking which makes it even more hot oh yeah like (laughs) it's also in a mean way a little hilarious yes oh absolutely absolutely. I laughed my butt off I mean this first part is the funniest scene in the entire movie and it's Darcy just he doesn't knock he doesn't do anything he just bursts in yes to the room he's like I'm here on a mission and he comes in and Lizzie's like oh my god 
hello, would you sit down? And he just stands petrified. <laughs> he cannot believe that he has done this. And I think like a lot of the lines that he says in this movie, he blurts them out and then immediately is like, oh, like, oh, God. Oh, no. Did I? <laughs> like, he wants to swallow them back up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he wants to do nothing more than run in the other direction as soon as he walks into this room. And Lizzie is being nice to him. And he is just like, uh, and she she offers him tea and he goes, no, thank you. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I've watched it over five times now and it's, it never gets old. So good. He's just 6'3", staring at her in blatant horror in the middle of like a parish house. But I also love this because like he can't make himself not. Like he knows this is a disaster. It is an undeniable unmitigated disaster every moment of this is a failure but like he has no choice because he is so in love with her and it's so clear like it is a painful it is seeping off of him like an aura and I love that like I'm so convinced by it I I buy it entirely the painful adoration he has for her in this scene that is keeping him from doing anything well (laughs) or doing anything self-serving yeah like I love it I absolutely love it yeah and I I think the other thing about this in less capable directorial hands it would be ridiculous for Lizzie to not be surprised when he proposes later yes Honestly, I I don't think this scene would have worked from most other directors. This is such a tightrope that they walk in this scene. Yeah. It could have been way camp. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to credit Keira Knightley's performance, like there is, a, there is a real sense of denial about what's happening with her in this scene. With her, it's not as much like Darcy's painfully aware of how he feels and he's trying to like repress it and push it down but also like literally can't help himself yeah but lizzie Mm -hmm. it's it should be so obvious how he feels in a way it's not in other adaptations Mm -hmm. but because she's so wrapped up in sort of denying how she feels about him she completely like skims over it like like her brain won't let her feel it yeah like it is a forced denial absolutely like she is willing herself to not comprehend what is so obvious um which also hurts love it Mm -hmm. that's interesting that's changing my mind a little bit because I was kind of viewing her in this like comparing her and the 1995 version I was like this Lizzie is laughing at him and like kind of making fun of him that Lizzie is hating him like despising him with all her heart but I thought that in this Lizzie's making fun of him I was like how is she not seeing this but I hadn't thought of it as like her denying her own feelings on the situation so that is interesting and I guess when I watch it a sixth time (laughs) I'll watch it with another layer well we've just come we've come off the tale of of being told like he is really bad at talking to people he's really bad at it which like is not news to us but it's a good like plant and payoff for like plausible deniability basically of her saying Mm -hmm. like like she is kind of laughing at him and she is kind of like I guess laughing with him because in what she is making her perception it's like oh yeah he's just super awkward nothing else is happening he is just awkward this is normal just awkward yeah and she does try in this moment she's like oh Lady Catherine did a great deal to it and he's like 
uh-huh. And she's like, she could not have bestowed her kindness upon a more grateful person. And Darcy just doesn't. He's just like, <laughs> I'm going to wring my, wring my gloves out a little more. They might be wet. I need to wring them out. <laughs> oh, sweet, sweet boy. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Then Charlotte returns and Darcy just bolts. He's like, all right, got to go. Uh, bye. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> he, just, he just bails. Oh, man. Just like 6-3 of pure disaster and chaos. And Charlotte's like, oh, my God, what did you do to him? And Lizzie's like, uh, I don't know. And that's it was perfect. What a good <laughs> oh, scene. So good. So good. So then they go to church. And I wanted to ask about the layout of this church. Why? I don't know if either of you go to church. I do not go to church. So I was like, why is the, what's he called, pastor? Why is Collins facing one direction? And then on either side, like there's people behind him facing sideways and people behind them facing sideways. The other, I was just so confused. Non-Euclidean pastor, just everywhere. Yeah. So I used to work in what was built as an Anglican church back in the day. And this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Good. I'm glad it wasn't just me wondering. I was like, oh, man, I should know this. But to the point where I thought the cinematographer might have made some weird choice to like fade over to a different part of the church or something, because like it doesn't make sense that he's like in the middle. Like the, the pulpit's not in the middle of the seating. It's so weird. If I'm wrong about this, listeners, again, I come at this from a historical and academic perspective. Right. So if you have some religious reasonings behind this that I don't understand, sure, but it didn't make sense to me. I think the point was so that Lizzie could look across and look at Darcy and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It felt very weird. Like, even if like this can be a thing in like modern churches, it certainly was not a thing back in ye olden days. Like this is this is nothing. 
No, and oh, this is Lady but... Catherine's personal church, right. as far as I know. So, like, what are all these people doing there? Anyway, so it starts out with Collins giving his sermon, and he talks about something being obtained by intercourse, and then everyone goes, hmm? Two things. I should clarify. It's not Lady Catherine's personal church. She's just the most important person in town. Oh. I mean, it's her personal church in as much as, like, like she owns this place like she's she's big fancy but everyone goes to church there yeah so in my mind lady catherine (laughs) oh did you mean very literally well in no but in my mind when i was reading the book i didn't really picture this as a real town i pictured it as like lady catherine is the mayor of lady catherinesville (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. i'm with you and this is her church yeah and so and i think that's how she thinks of herself for sure. Yeah. And like she has her house and then there's the parsonage where her personal church man lives. And <laughs> then there's the church. <laughs> church man. I didn't want to call him a pastor again because I don't know if that's correct. Rector. 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 Oh, right. My rectory abuts her estate. Personal church man. <laughs> Listen, happy Hanukkah to me. Yeah, I was going to say shalom from the Jews. <laughs> wow. So... So we're in the church and Lizzie is talking with Fitzwilliam about Darcy and they're joking and Lizzie's joking about how whatever lady Darcy marries is going to be like sucks for her. And Fitzy is like, no, no, she'll be very lucky. He's very loyal. And he tells her that recently Darcy saved a friend of his from a disadvantageous marriage. And Lizzie's like, what? And Again, horror movie. So yes. she like looks at Darcy and then she keeps looking at him across the church. And then when she finds out that it was Jane and that the uh, objection was to her family, Darcy looks back at her and Lizzie's like, <gasps> and then the music goes. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Very dramatic. And then she just runs. <laughs> yeah. The blocking of this scene is wild. Like that camera is just right up on some of those faces. And those faces are also right up on other faces. Uh, it's just a lot going on. Like I wanted to, and maybe this is a side effect of like quarantine, but I just wanted to be like, oh, this is, I need to personal space, please. Um, excuse me. Excuse me. Six feet, please. Yeah. Yeah. Because this church was not crowded no why were so many of them sitting so close to each other so close because i want to like chat at church i don't know but this is going back a little bit but i just wanted to give a shout out to charlotte's face while collins was talking which is the only despair that they give us for charlotte yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) well also we talked about this earlier or in a previous episode which is the thunder sound effects which come in very, very obviously at various moments. And when he says intercourse, it's like, boom. Yeah, it is so ridiculous. That doesn't happen whenever you say intercourse, boom. <laughs> no, not for me. Grandma, sound effect, boom. That's God's version of saying nice when the number 69 comes up. Like, yep. yeah, someone yep. says intercourse, God is like, ha 420, a yeah, thunderclap. <laughs> Zeus, you up there? Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's certainly having some intercourse. We know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said, hey. Boom, indeed. So Lizzie is running and it is raining. And I want to, for all of our listeners who have been with us from the beginning, they'll remember. We've been waiting for this a long time. (laughs) We've been waiting for this a long time because in our first episode, when Becca asked me what I know about Pride and Prejudice, I said, I know there's a scene with Colin Firth in the rain. (laughs) And she laughed at me. (laughs) 
because I could not discern these two white men. Yeah, I couldn't. That's I couldn't so do fair. it. That's so fair. <laughs> I didn't know. So here we are. I made it through Colin Firth's version and I was like, where's the rain? Here's the rain. And here's the rain. Lizzie's running through the rain. Mm-hmm. I'm not even looking at my notes. I'm just, I just watched it. So I'm like recounting oh, it in my brain. Yep. Yes. Let me pull them up. So Lizzie's running through the rain and she's crying. She looked like she was going to cry in the church too. And she runs to this like place with columns. Yeah. Marble gazebo. Yes. Yeah. It's like a in the middle of nowhere over a bridge through the woods to grandmother's house we go. And it's like covered in moss and like rust. And it's very pretty. And it looks over this gorgeous sleeping countryside. It's like gorgeous. But like, what is it? So she's at this marble gazebo of types. And the cinematography here, like, sneaks up on her. And we know that it's Darcy. Another horror movie moment. Yes. It's another horror movie moment. He steps into the frame and she turns and she gasps, like, what are you doing here? And he, here he goes. Here he goes. He wrote it down and he memorized it. Yes. He memorized it. He yes. says it so fast. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This poor boy practiced in front of a mirror like a sim. <laughs> He really did. Oh, God. <laughs> he really did. He he says that he came to Rosings to see her. He had to see her. But I liked how he said that. He was like, I came to Rosings to see you. I had to see you. I had to see you. I had to see you. So at first, when I watched this, I didn't like this proposal. I was laughing the whole time. I was like, this is insane. This doesn't make any sense with how the book is written. But it makes sense with this movie. Yes. Because he planned out the whole proposal. He says it all up front. And the way that he does it is just like so completely earnest and awkward. And it's not even like in the 1995, it felt malicious when he said all of those things. And in the Mm -hmm. book, it felt malicious. Yes. And in this one, it feels like he genuinely thinks that she understands that. Absolutely. Yes. This was pivotal for me. Like this. And this is, again, the reason this is the only Darcy I like. He just, he's so, like you said, he's so earnest. He thinks that what he's saying could not be construed as harmful. He is just unaware. He doesn't get it. He thinks that they're on the same page, uh, even though they've consistently not been on the same page. And I love the way that he blurts it all out. I love the fact that it's rehearsed. And I love that it's absolutely fucking unhinged. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, she has inadvertently, mostly, uh, destroyed this man. Mm-hmm. He is so captivated. Again, he cannot help himself. Mm-hmm. He vomits out this monologue and then looks like he desperately wishes to just suck that back in. It's great. I will say that I think that this outside gazebo thing is so fucking distracting. It's so weird. So weird. It's so weird because like when I think gazebo, I think like I don't like smaller. It's so open and there's like not really like I can't like tell a structure to it. So the whole time I was like what is fucking columns doing here? Like, is this just so that they can, like, lean on shit and look dreamy? I mean, I'm okay with it. Like, I'm okay. I like a column. Uh, We talked about how my family's from New Jersey. I like a column. <laughs> <laughs> but what were they doing there? <laughs> the, the columns make no sense. But I, I love this scene. And I yeah. think you guys are totally right in everything you said about this. And I think this, in all of the stuff we have covered as a podcast so far, is the most sweepingly romantic of the moments that we've had. Now, the book and the 1985 are deeply romantic. It's rom-com. But not this part. It's it's romantic later in the book in the 1995. It's not romantic here. Oh, this is proposal get-in. Yeah. In our terms. Yeah. Yes. And that is because, like, and this is something Will really articulated well, is 
like Darcy's misread everything. Yes. Like he has no reason to think that she would say yes to him. Here, it's like he can't help himself. He has to say it. And also, to be fair to him, there has been a softness and a banter and a deep like sexual tension to the way they've interacted. Yes. So he's not crazy. Ooh, the hand flex. Yeah. And I, I think this is kind of important. Um, this is also my last study question, but I guess we'll tackle it here, which is like the, the way the dialogue is in the scene is a li- like just a little different at first than it is in the book. And I pulled up the quote mm. where he opens up his proposal to her. He says, in vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. This is an iconic line. Mm-hmm. How ardently I admire and love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, she's speaking and he just goes, I love you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah and then yeah, he yeah. says deeply, almost crying as he looks at her. Yes. Most ardently. Oh. It is sexy. Oh, so good. It is different than this scene in the yes. book. Yes. By a long shot. Yes. But when he says that, we all fall a little in love with him. Right? And also, like, you don't need him to say the rest of that shit. Like, that struggle is conveyed. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> like, we don't need all the extra words. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that he just creeps that out. Oh, Yeah, well, when he, he opens out and he's like blurting out all this stuff about how he's, he's been suffering and like he came to Rosings to see her and she's like I don't understand what you're talking about and he goes I love you yeah and then he like covers his mouth almost he's like oh dear Partly. I was like okay he didn't even I don't even know if he had been planning to say I love you like he was like I'm gonna ask her to marry me that's for sure but like he was so in the moment there and I again at first was upset that he didn't say all this stuff the second time I was like "Ooh, this is hot and when she says so after he says all of this stuff about how it, the connections and the blah 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 about how she's not good enough, but he loves her so much, please marry him. And he does ask. I noted that. That's not something that happens in the, the original. He's like, please do me the honor of accepting my hand and becoming my wife or something. The main point I'm trying to make is he does ask here and he says, please do me the honor. And it's yes. like, oh, okay. And then she denies him. And he's like, why would you tell me you like me against your own will? And he says, wait, no, I didn't mean. And then she, like, keeps barreling over him. But, like, he's trying to say, wait, I didn't mean it like that. That's not what I meant to say. So, like, what happens in the book is she's so shocked that he's in love with her Mm -hmm. that she doesn't say anything. And what he says is, well, it doesn't say exactly what it says, but it says this. (laughs) He concluded with representing to her the strength of that attachment, which, in spite of all his endeavors, he had found impossible to conquer and expressing his hope that it would now be rewarded by her acceptance of his hand. As he said this, she could easily see that he had no doubt of a favorable answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very different. Well, what I was thinking is, in the book, a lot of the proposal is not via dialogue. Like, it's written about what has happened, aside from that first line. Then it's like, this is, then he talked about all of the inferiority of her connections, and blah, 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 blah. So I think that there's, for me at least going into this, there was such an expectation that it was going to be the same as the 1995 that I was just so surprised. And I was like, actually, the book never said that stuff either. Right. So this movie had every right to do what it did, and it did it in a really 
freaking hot and sexy way. Yeah. So, oh my God, it's so hot. So they're like fighting. And Will, you brought up the dialogue d- direction before. They're like talking over each yes. other. And oh he's like, God. oh, if your pride hadn't wounded. And she's like, my pride. And he keeps talking. And they're just like going at it head for head. And then she brings up Jane. And he's like, well, I thought she didn't like him. And she's like, my sister hardly shows her true feelings to her to me and then he freezes he's like oh he's like oh shit oh no i really fucked up yeah (laughs) like yeah and it's one of those things because like in the book he like has to write it down because he's like i'm never going to be able to pervade these thoughts perfectly Mm -hmm. and here they're actually having a head-to-head about it there in person and it's interesting because it actually gets you more on darcy's side yeah yes because then the letter is just purely like he's the hero yes 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 Yes, the letter was such a thing. When we talked about it with Eric, he was like, I don't understand why he's opening with all of this terrible shit. Like, start with the good stuff, or it was either that way or the other. <laughs> like, he was like, why are you dissing her entire family in this letter? What do you think that's going to do? And I'm like, yeah, that was a dumb thing to do. So I like that she brings it up right away, and he turns right back on her. He's like, well, I didn't think that I was doing anything wrong. And he's so earnest about it again. Darcy is an earnest puppy. I want to talk about emotional trust because that is another thing that makes this so hot to me is the amount of trust they give to each other in this scene. Like Darcy obviously comes with a lot of vulnerability, a lot. But then Lizzie is also doing the vulnerability of talking about her family and challenging him because this is so contrasted with a scene uh, later on that I think we'll get into in other episodes. But she has that conflict with Lady Catherine where uh, Lady Catherine is like trying to get these, you know, these answers out of her and badgering her. And instead of kind of like offering anything up, she just continually dismisses her because there isn't that trust. Like she knows she's not going to actually make a difference here. She knows that she's not going to be respected and listened to. And I think that she would really only engage this much with someone who she knew she could emotionally trust with it, um, which I think is like more romantic than almost anything else about this is the fact that like they are willing to go head to head, not just because they are both good at it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's not a competition. They are going head to head because ultimately they want to understand each other. And they feel secure actually having these discussions. That's good shit. That's good shit. (laughs) It's some real hot shit. You know, that's interesting because also later on in the book, I think this is very true of these characters, not just in this adaptation, but in general. Later on in the book, when Darcy finds out, well, when Lizzie finds out that Lydia has run off with Wickham and Darcy is there, Lizzie goes back and she's like, Darcy knows, but she trusts with her entire heart that he's not going to tell anyone. Absolutely. And then, of course, he... He does the ultimate and like goes and gets Lydia back and like also gets them married and like, yeah, as we know. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, the trust that's there already from the beginning, like when you know, you know. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. I will say that there's um, when when this scene comes up in the book and I think like you can really hear it when you hear Molly like read this passage for the first time. Like it is delicious to hear Lizzie rip him to shit. Oh, it's so good. And I love that. I love that, like, you know, we're, we've talked about how he's earnest and he genuinely believes these things and we understand why he's saying them. But I love that. I think it's more powerful to have him be earnest and not be malicious 
and still show how wrong he is. Like, yeah, like just because you're sweet doesn't mean that you can get out of saying awful shit. Exactly. Ignorance does not matter. You fucked up, buddy. Right. I also in this, this is something that wasn't in the book. Lizzie asks if he thought that Jane was only after Bingley for his money. And Darcy's like, no, I wouldn't say that about Jane. Of course, it was implied. And then she's like, what? What was implied? And he's like, well, your mother implied that it would be a most advantageous marriage. And Lizzie is like so mad. But then he's like, no, 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 it wasn't just her. It was your whole family. And then Lizzie is (laughs) glaring at him. And he's like, oh, my God, forgive me. And I don't know. He just he knows that he's fucking up. He's stepping on his own feet the entire time. I will say this is the moment in the interaction where the scene goes from like, beautiful and captivating and super hot to an absolute joke to me and it is because he says your family and then we get a big thunderclap and it is so (laughs) fucking funny i couldn't handle it i was laughing so hard no one even said intercourse right like it's it's literally as if it's like two steps away from going dun 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 yeah like huge thunderclap and it's signaled in the subtitles and then we have the discussion about Wickham, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second, but that's when he steps so close to her and has all the sexual tension. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the combination of those two things. Like first, I couldn't take it seriously. And now he's like, Wickham, huh? Yeah. Talk more about that. Mm-hmm. He said, like, oh, Wickham. That's so weird. That's so weird. On the Wickham thing, it's just true that the Wickham story carries less water in this adaptation by a lot. But it does lead to this big buildup because now Darcy has this righteous anger yeah. as opposed to like a panic. Mm-hmm. And he stops stuttering around her and they're yelling at each yes. other. Yes. And then she has that moment where it's a takedown in the book where she says, you are the last man on earth I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. That's the exact line here. That's it. That's it. I mean, yeah, obviously, but it's longer. It's And they use the whole one. I do. I did one of those those memes where I did the hand washing thing, but I used this quote. So you can go on our Instagram. And no, find I got it. it. I got oh, it. Oh, you got it. Great. From the very beginning, from the first moment, I may almost say of my acquaintance with you, your manners impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others were such as to form that groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding events have built so immovable a dislike, and I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Yes. Lizzie, you damn hypocrite. Yep. (laughs) And when she says it in the book, it is like a blistering, stinging takedown. In this movie, it is said in the heat of passion. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But my question is, at what point in this proposal did it switch from being really just a disaster train going down to in your face about to make out? I think it's when Wickham comes it up. Is. No, it is. It is. I, I tracked it. It's immediately when Wickham comes up, which does make me think, like, Darcy, do you have a little crush? Little gay? Do you have a little crush? Little gay? A little crush? Oh, just a little gay. A little... Everyone, our headcanon is that everyone in this movie is gay. Oh, yeah. In the book. Everyone in the, the story yeah, 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 is gay, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just very strange timing. I do like, this is another instance where kind of like uh, the community dancing together scene where Lizzie has these like long trains of thoughts, actually kind of like how Darcy reverses things, where she'll take a while to not actually listen to the other person 
and instead formulate what she's saying and then get it out. She's like, she's like a Lady Catherine in training, but I think that this knocks her down and makes it so that she doesn't get there. Um, and also, like, we could talk about how she couldn't get there because of blah, 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 blah. So, like, the way that I read this scene is definitely that she brings up Wickham. She thinks that she's hit a home run and she, like, tunes the fuck out for the rest of it because she is just prepping this long takedown of him that is so girl is projecting oh yeah like, oh yeah so much about herself and she really just thinks that like she has one and there is no other information to be gained for her from this interaction yeah you know thinking back on the entirety of the movie until this point this lizzie does not hate darcy that much like she doesn't like him but mostly she's amused by him and kind of annoyed by him but like the sexual tension is there from the beginning and yeah and she just doesn't hate him enough to say all of those things well i think that's what this movie does the movie leverages finding out about jane to make her say those things in the heat of the passion yes. it's not something yes. that's been building since the moment she met him in the same way right so then why didn't they change the line to not say from the very beginning, nay, from the first moment of our acquaintance? Because like because she's trying to hit and she's projecting. Yeah, she is projecting and she is trying to make him feel bad. I really think that it's like a, it's her being kind of lashing out and being defensive. Like he has insulted her family and I think specifically at one point her father. Yes, the father was the one that he was like, oh, forgive me. Yeah, and I think that's when the thunder happened too is he says, your father, and it's kaboom. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> that's the stinger for her. At that point, it has become personal in a way where like it had been before, but he has touched a very sore spot for her. And I think that from that moment, again, like, you know, she brings up Wickham because she knows it's going to hurt him the same way. And then I really think that she just like withdraws and declares herself the winner and says the most unkind thing she could think of. Now that I'm thinking about it, the way that he is put together, because now it's an act of righteousness. So interpreting it through that lens that like Wickham is brought up, there is this righteousness, there is an urgency. That's probably why he gets close. And then he feels confident, but then he realizes that he's close. And then it gets sexy. <laughs> yes, I think, I think you're right because what she says should not turn him on in the least. Not she's at all. Yelling at him. And she shouldn't be, she's angry too. And then you see this moment. It felt like I was watching a modern rom com where, or like a TV show, like a sitcom even. They're like, oh no, our faces are next to each other. And you see both of them soften. And then he kind of leans, leans in. in. Uh huh. Uh -huh. And his lips start to go like he's uh -huh. going to kiss her. And uh -huh. then she, like, her eyes do the thing where they go down to his lips and then up to his eyes, like, <gasps> Uh-huh. What's happening? Oh my god. It's ugh. Uh-huh. The thing is that it's after she says, You are the last man on earth I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Oh man, he's like, Yes, walk all over me. Well, I see that moment as like she's shocked by what he said. He's gutted by what she said. Uh-huh. They want somebody to hold them. They're both shocked. They're both standing there like they both can't believe she just said that. And then in the moment of shock they realize they are within inches of each other's mouth. And they want to make out. They want They want to make out so bad. They are breathing heavily. The chemistry is like crackling between them. And he leans in and the way his mouth is about to form the words, forgive me. Yes. Oh, oh my God. He looks yes. like he's yes. going in yes. to kiss her. Ugh. And that is so delicate and intentional and biting. Ugh. 
See, I read it. I didn't even think about like what he's about to say. Like, even though I've seen it four times now, I know what he's about to say, but I'm still like, he's going to kiss her and then he stops himself. But yes, you're right. I think both are true. Yes. Like they both are true. Both is good. It's a yes and situation. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. This I I, like need to go just lay on the floor for a while. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to have a glass of wine after this. (laughs) The thing is that makes this so relatable is that they want in this moment what's bad for them yeah they're both being so mean to each other and like I don't know about y'all but if someone's mean to me I don't know it's my fan fiction heart was thump thumping in this part I was like yes oh my god enemies kiss 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 Uh kiss kiss uh 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 you're gonna regret this so hard in the morning but just do it and it was perfect yeah and then he said forgive me and he turned and walked away sorry forgive me madam for taking up so much of your time which is also devastating mm-hmm. oh. and she's just in the rain by the marble gazebo love it Oof. that brings us finally to the end of this section of this movie the pivotal moment really I could keep talking about it for another hour, but I know our listeners don't want to hear me talk about four seconds of a video. I mean, frankly, it's going to get a little bit uncomfortable for us all because we're just going to get all very turned on if we keep talking about it. Pod and Prejudice after dark. Yep. Pod and Prejudice after hours. Yep. It's back, Mm. Mm y'all. So this brings us to Becca's study questions. And this is the portion of the episode where we are going to ask a couple of our standby questions that we have for every film episode, starting with what is your favorite line delivery in this section? This is hard because, first of all, we recorded three episodes on this section and there was just so much to unpack. And I forgot to think about it until the end because I was just so into it. But it's okay because all of the best moments were in this last five minutes. Yes. So for me, I think I'm, I may have to give it to, I love you. <gasps> most ardently. Yes. Yeah, the most ardently was good, but the I love you, oh my God, what did I just say? It was really good. Oh, it's the combination for me. It's, it's half one and half two. It's so good. I have to agree with Will on this. It's the I love you because that's so spontaneous, but then there's the choice to the say. The choice, yes. Most ardently right after. It's beautiful. He commits to it. He's like, it's done, so I might as well actually put my heart on my sleeve. Oh, yeah. so good. Oh, he's on the roller coaster and he is just going down. Oh, yeah. He's like, well, shit, I'm in it now. Yep. Might as well. Yeah. So a couple honorable mentions, because I think we can all agree that that is the best line delivery in this part. Gotta give it up to excellent boiled potatoes. Oh, yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, yes. An honorable mention for me would also be after Darcy asks Lizzie to dance in the beginning. Yes. And then she turns to Charlotte and she's like, did I just agree to dance with Mr. Darcy? Like, what? Yeah. It's a good moment. Uh, everything Dame Judy Dunch says. Everything that comes out of her mouth. Perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Chef's kiss. And I was going to say the one for Kira Knightley, again, just to defend a performance that I think we all have some criticisms of, uh, is when she says, dancing, mm. even if one's partner is... Fairly tolerable. Yeah. Yes. That's a good one. Good. Uh, she lands that one. So good. All right. Oh, one more honorable mention. Bingley going. <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's so good. Yes. Yes. Um, great choice. And then uh, next one is noticeable differences between film and book. That 
is too many. So let's all go for one really hefty difference between the book and the film that you like or dislike. Biggest difference for me, I enjoyed the film. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That's fair. We'll take it. Yes. Very good. Um, My biggest difference would have to be the removal of so many characters, but mainly the one that shocked me the most was Louisa. And it, it shocked me as a is a loose term because I was like shocked and then I was like oh uh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest notable difference is kind of subtle but it would be the dynamics between the Bennett family. It's just a happier family yeah. in this film. Yeah totally. Favorite and least favorite parts. Let's start with least favorite. Pig balls. <laughs> uh, favorite part for me honestly. <laughs> Ribbon store. Mm. I, I hate that scene so much. It's so deeply uncomfortable. I hate it more the more I think about it. Like the Wickham is bad. The ribbon store is bad. It's all very weird. I don't like it. Yeah. My least favorite thing in this is just across the board, the the Wickham. It's just poorly written, poorly directed. Yep. Like the actor does a fine job, but he has nothing to work with. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't even, I don't think I would defend his performance. He is like deeply uncharismatic. I wouldn't either. It's forced. I'm reluctant to blame him though, because I think that, he he was so underwritten. The script was forced. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And I think uh, that is, to me, the only big change from this portion of the story that really bugs me. Mm-hmm. Favorite part? Mine is that scene where Darcy fucks up over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good choice. Good choice. My favorite part has to be Dame Judy Dench just absolutely slaying from oh. the first moment we see her. I wanted more of her. Yes. Which is funny because in the 1995 version and in the book, the entire time we were in Rosings, I was bored. And when we finished the book, I was like, my least favorite part was Rosings because nothing happened. And this, I was like, I could stay here. Because she's perfect. She sells it so well. Yeah, she's incredible. And I would say my favorite part, I'm going to I'm gonna give it to the proposal scene because it is not proposal getting, but it is in its own right in this adaptation, iconic. Yes. Almost amazing. Yes. And I would say of all the sort of histrionic, melodramatic changes made to modernize this, that one is the most effective. And last but not least, who wins the film? I'm going to say director Joe Wright. I think he had a really hard job. Yeah. And I think the choice to make this not the 1995 to make this not the book was so smart because I think this movie is just lovely on its own. I think I'm going to say that the winner of the film is water and moisture. It's a very wet movie. Everyone is drippy. The audience too at the end of it. Uh, That's so true. I cannot deny it. (laughs) Uh, There's like ponds. There's all this grass. Everything's like misty. It's It's a very drippy movie. And as someone who is from a desert. Uh, I don't usually love that. It makes me feel very claustrophobic. Don't like humidity. But here, here it works. Hell yeah. I'm going to give my win to the opening title with the music Uh, coming in and sunrises in general. Um, I think that the music really paints this like early morning thing that alludes to the end of the film, which obviously we'll get to but the music of this film is just so gorgeous incredible and even though there are moments where I'm like what are you doing like when Lizzie is like <gasps> and then it goes I was like okay but every other moment the music was really beautiful and that opening slide with the title coming in with the sunrise was just 
stunning. And I was so excited going into it. And I was like, I'm ready for this. So I'm going to give it to the music and sunrises. Hell yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Oh. All right. That concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice, which for the three of us has been a four hour <laughs> recording session. <laughs> Will, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Will W. Writes. That's W-I-L-W underscore writes. Please, please tweet to me about how great this film is. If you don't think that this film is good, uh tweet Molly instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'll work. You can also find my podcast production company, including uh, the fiction podcast I am the showrunner for, Valence. You can find that over at hughouse.productions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. This has truly been a delight. Just such a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. I have very deeply enjoyed this. Made me even more passionate about this film that I already thought absolutely ruled. So, <laughs> so glad. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, listeners. And until next time, stay proper and find yourself six foot three of pure disaster. Hell yeah. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.